think so. Glenn, great to have you with us. Let me, for those who don't know Glenn, I, I know Glenn a fair bit, and we last, I think, played cricket together. That's right. Yep. But for those... Who won? Who won? Okay. Just, <laughs> I think it saying. might have been you guys. Yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a distinct memory of that. Yeah. 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 What was your contribution? Oh, yeah, actually took a few wickets, I think, that day. Um, well, I think, did I catch you out? <laughs> I think I yeah, that you might out. have been true. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Glenn's a cricketer. <laughs> Tell us, that you're also Australian, which means that probably one of your ancestors was a criminal. Yes. Do you, yeah. Do you, do you want to tell us a few more things about yourself, just to so introduce Anne us? Anne Forbes is my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. She stole 10 yards of printed cotton from a London market, and she was sentenced to be hanged by the neck until dead in 1786. And then they were about to transport the convicts to Australia. They realized they were transporting 1,700 male convicts and only 300 female convicts. And they thought to themselves, this is a bad policy if you're going to colonize a country. So they... they uh, uh, shifted some sentences from death to transportation to Australia uh, for 14 years, which is what Anne Forbes got. And she met and married Thomas Huxley, whose great crime was uh, stealing his master's horse without his permission. Um, Joyriding, basically. So they met and married, and seven generations later, here I am. Here you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you actually researched that. Oh, yeah. All oh, right, well, uh, what else? Tell us something else. Well, that's about a badge yourself. of honor. In Australia, that's a badge of honor. That's not a skeleton in the closet. That's like everyone wishes they had First Fleet ancestry, and I do. So I, I'm married to Emma. Uh, she's from Northern Ireland, and uh, we live in Eastbourne, which I, I allow my wife to think that's about halfway uh, between Belfast and Sydney. Um, because compromise is how marriages work, isn't it? So uh, we've got JJ is five years old, Ruby is seven years old, and I'm a Church of England minister, but my day job is to work with Speak Life, and that frees me up to do things like write books or speak and that sort of thing. Just give us a bit more about Speak Life. I'm on to Speak Life. I know a number of people here follow the podcast, YouTube channel, all that sort of thing. Just tell us a bit more about Speak Life and what you do. Okay, so if you're on YouTube, you can go and search you, uh, Speak Life, um, and find our channel and uh, subscribe and tap that bell. Um, that would be great. And then you get our videos in your feed. And uh, we've got a podcast as well. Search for the Speak Life podcast. So we do a number of different things. There's speaking stuff. And then there's media type stuff, including books and podcasts and videos. And then there's training as well. So if you want to learn how to be a creative evangelist, in the 21st century, we'd love to train you in how to speak about Jesus and make media about Jesus and really go deep in the Bible to get a theology of creativity and mission. So there's a, there's a foundry aspect to it. So that's a training thing that you can do. Either come to us for a week or come to us for a year. We'd love to see you. So you can go to speaklife.org.uk and find out more. I'd like to publicly attribute a lot of my sermons and their <laughs> illustrations right now to the Speak Live team. Thank you very much for your ministry. It's been a massive blessing to me. <laughs> um, so this book, can I hold up this book? And it is available to buy at the back of church today. It's Glenn's latest book. I think you've written now nine. Something like that. This one, I mean, they're very, very good. And I know a number of them are available at the back. I've just read this one, well, a month or so ago. And it is brilliant, it's fantastic. One complaint, Glenn, mm. and that is the page numbers are way too small. Has anyone else said that to you? No, no. I could not read them. Maybe Talk it's about just... nitpicking, <laughs> honestly. No, no one has ever said that. But just share, where did the, um, where did the sort of the, the energy and the thinking rise up to produce this book? Tell us a bit about that. 
there's a, a quote on the top by an historian called Tom Holland, who's a great podcaster. So if you're into podcasting, the rest is history podcast is brilliant. Um, but um, he wrote a book called Dominion, which is a big fat book that takes you through the history of the last 2,000 years and shows how really, whether you've set foot inside a church or not, whether you've opened the Bible or not, um, you are influenced by Christianity in ways you probably haven't realized yet. And he takes about six or 700 pages to take you through that argument. And uh, my father-in-law, who's a great history buff, I bought him that for Christmas, like three Christmases ago, and it still remains on his shelf, unread, even though he's a history buff. And so I thought, I'm gonna write a book that my father-in-law will read. <laughs> um, and so it's kind, of, it's kind of like Dominion. Dominion for dummies, and I'm the dummy. And it's basically showing how all of us, I, I don't know if you've um, seen the census data that's just come out, the 2021 census. Do you remember filling that out? I don't even remember filling that out. I don't remember anything about the last two and a half years, but apparently one night I filled in some forms, and you probably filled in some forms, and the data came out this week, and it said that for the first time in this country, less than 50% of people wrote Christian in the religion box. And increasing numbers of people have said they have no religion. And I think uh, a lot of people are making comments about that. I think what I want to say in the book and what I want to say this morning is basically everyone in this country has some really distinctive beliefs. We believe in compassion and equality and consent and enlightenment and freedom and science and progress. We believe in all these big things that have come to us uniquely through Jesus. And so we live in a Jesus-y kind of culture, and we've been shaped by Jesus in ways that you probably haven't realized yet. And so I take a lot fewer pages than Tom Holland does to walk you through that argument and then to introduce you to the person who's given you the beliefs that you already have. Amazing. Glenn, let me pray for you, and then I'll just let you, uh, let you go for it. So, Father, it's uh, wonderful to be together like this for those who are here in the room and also those joining us online. I pray for Glenn as he speaks now. I pray that um, his words and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Glenn. There's another person I wrote the book for. So I wrote it for my father-in-law. I also wrote it for a friend of mine called Sally. I'll call her Sally for this morning anyway. Um, not her real name, but she is a friend of mine, and she once wrote me a letter knowing that I'm a Christian and she's not. Halfway down the first page, she wrote this one sentence that I've remembered for the last 20 years. She said, Glenn, I hope you realize I could never be a person of faith. And it struck me 20 years ago, and it strikes me today as a remarkable thing to say because my friend Sally believes all sorts of things actually. She is a person of faith. When she left university, she went and helped out with an NGO, a non-government organization in Africa, and she spends her time now uh, in all sorts of charitable works, charitable giving. She's a wonderful mother. She's a sort of a pillar of her community, and she lives her life by various ideals and morals and values and gut instincts that require a leap of faith but she doesn't think that she's capable of faith. She thinks that I've taken the leap of faith, and I'm kind of this faith head who's sort of dangling in, in midair, 
And she thinks of herself as the sort of person who lives by reason and evidence, and she just goes by what's obvious. She's a thinking person, I'm more of a faith person. Do you have friends like that? Or maybe that's the way you feel about yourself. Maybe you feel like you're more of a person of faith than other people are thinking people, as though there's this massive kind of divorce between the two. And yet, what I want to say to Sally, and what I want to say to all of you, is that everybody lives by faith. Every single day, you navigate the world according to beliefs and intuitions and gut instincts that you can't prove. You believe in things like, on, on the slide, you believe in things like equality, right? You, you believe that every single member of the human family is the equal of every other member of the human family, right? No matter their race, their religion, their gender, their sexuality, their class, their wealth, doesn't matter. Everyone's equal, right? You believe that, don't you? If you don't believe that, you get kicked off Facebook pretty quickly, okay? <laughs> of, course, of course we're all equals. We think that's an obvious belief. It's not an obvious belief. You think it's natural. Well, what natural fact of this world told you that we're all equal? Maybe you think it's universal. Actually, pre-Christian and non-Christian cultures don't take this for granted. But you believe it. Why do you believe it? You believe it because of the Jesus revolution, a.k.a. Christianity. Tom Holland, the historian that I just mentioned, he's called Christianity the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in human history. And we're all swept up in it. Whether you've ever opened a Bible before, whether this is your first time in church or not, you're a believer. You believe in equality, you believe in compassion, you believe that we have a duty of care to the weak, and that if someone is by the roadside, as we'll see, you have a duty to be a good Samaritan. And maybe as a society, we have a duty to be a good Samaritan to those who can't look after themselves. We think that a society is best that looks after its weakest members. Don't you think that? Of course you think that. Where did you get that idea from? Or consent. You, you think that no elite man has the right to the bodies of other people sexually. You, you believe that consent should be right at the heart of a sexual relationship. And if it's not there, then that's an act of great wickedness and abuse. You might think that's an obvious belief to hold. That has not been an obvious belief to non-Christian and pre-Christian cultures. It's not been obvious. Or enlightenment. You think that we should forward our ends by persuasion and not by force. You should educate people rather than just conquer them. You believe in enlightenment. Or you believe in science. You believe that we're able to do science, that little old homo sapiens with our sort of three pounds of gray matter between our ears, somehow these brains are able to access the mysteries of the cosmos somehow, and that science is a good thing that's going to progress society. That hasn't been obvious to a lot of people. Freedom. People are not property and should never be treated like property, right? And every member of the human family should be in charge of their own lives. You believe that, don't you? Again, if you don't believe that, you're chucked off Facebook instantly. Bang, you're gone. You believe in freedom. But that has not been an obvious belief 
around the world and down through history. You believe in progress. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Do you have that kind of belief? Maybe you do. Thing is, Sally believes that. Sally believes all those things, and she doesn't think that she's a person of faith. And so I wrote the book, The Air We Breathe, and I'm here this morning to tell the Sallies of the world, you're already a believer, you don't need to leap. You're already six miles in the air. And I'm urging you to have something underneath your feet. Only Jesus will do. And maybe you sit there and you look at those values and you think to yourself, oh no, but those are just the obvious values of secular humanism. Have you heard that phrase, secular humanism? Secular means, okay, let's not have a religious framework. Let's look at the world through lenses that are not shaped by religion and belief. Let's purely look at the world through a scientific lens and be logical about things. So there's secular, and then there's humanism. What's humanism? It's basically these values here, that there is an inviolable dignity and worth to every single human being. We all have human rights, and we should be compassionate, right? That's, that's humanism. But I want to split those two things apart in your thinking. There's, there's the secular over here, and there's the humanism over here. Okay, so the secular view of the world is simply that we are all very clever chimpanzees, right, all of us, we're all very clever chimpanzees, but the humanist side says, ah, but we have unbreakable human rights. Does that make sense? We're very clever chimpanzees and we have unbreakable human rights. Did we get that view from that belief? I don't think we did get that view from that belief, and I don't think we can get that view from that belief. Or you think about compassion, right? The secular view says, I am a biological survival machine, and the humanist view says, and I must look after the weak. Why? If I'm a biological survival machine, why must I look after the weak? Did we get that humanist view from that secular outlook? No, we didn't. Can we get that humanist view from that secular out outlook? I would say no. Or you might think consent. So the secular view says, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. And the humanist view says, so we must honor one another's sexual boundaries at all times. Does that make sense? Did we get the humanist thing from the secular thing? Enlightenment. We are the heirs of a brutal, evolutionary history, and we must forward our ends only through education and persuasion and never by force. Why? Or science. These brains are purely the result of natural selection and the survival instinct, and we can trust them to plumb the mysteries of the cosmos. This science did science come from secular outlooks? No. You can get the book and you can see science came from Christians in Christian universities pursuing a Christian view of the world for Christian reasons. Or freedom, the secular view of the world says, again, we are the heirs of a brutal evolutionary history, but we must never pursue a master race, ever. You're like, well, on the secular view, why not? 
or progress. I am a biological survival machine clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction, and things are going to get better. I can just feel it. Did that view come from this outlook? It's like, no, no. Those great values, all those values are brilliant values. But they did not come from a secular outlook. They came most specifically from the Jesus revolution. Don't believe me, you can have a look at the book, or we can all turn to Luke chapter 10, and what we're going to do right now is have a look at the compassion value in particular. I'm not going to walk you through all the values, but the compassion value in particular is something I think all of us hold, and I want us to see from the most famous short story Jesus ever told that that value has come from him and his revolution. So it'll be up on the screen or in your church Bibles. If you're looking at your church Bible, it's on page 1041. And let's read Luke chapter 10. Okay, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to Jerus from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the man who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amazing. Have you heard that story before? It's a famous story. And maybe even if you haven't heard all those verses read out, you know the idea of the Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan is someone who looks after the weak. And they don't pass on by on the other side of the road. When you see someone in, in weakness, when you see someone in need of help, you move towards the need, and you serve the weak and the marginalized and the poor, right? Don't you think that's the right thing to do? If you think that, you're a weirdo, right? That hasn't been the obvious response to need and weakness around the world and down through history. It hasn't at all been the obvious response. In the Roman world, there was a little saying. They would say, every day, do something to help your friend and harm your enemy. Do you like that saying? 
probably like the first half, don't you? And then you wish they hadn't said the second half. What do you mean, harm your enemy? That's, that's no way to treat enemies. But I think the Romans are working within their own outlook of the world, and they're, they're just cleverly navigating the world according to their own outlook. And if it's survival of the fittest, well, then it's also the sacrifice of the weakest, isn't it? Isn't that how you should operate? If all there is is nature red in tooth and claw, then sure, there's survival of the fittest, try to be fit, and sacrifice of the weakest. And maybe you can help nature along by bumping off the weakest, right? Well, you don't like that, do you? The idea of bumping off the weakest, you don't like that at all. You know that twinge you had in your stomach just then? That's your Christianity twinging within you. See, the, the Romans or the Greeks, if they were telling a story like that, imagine Aesop, you know, Aesop's fables, you know, like the tortoise and the hare, those sorts of stories, little moral tales. If Aesop was telling this story, it would basically be, once upon a time, there was a guy who got beaten up because he was out late at night in a place he shouldn't have been. Moron. Don't be like that guy. Right? That, that, that would be the morality tale, wouldn't it? Once upon a time, there was a guy who was beaten up. Okay? And in the ancient minds, you would think, oh, if he's beaten up on the side of the road, then maybe he was just an idiot. Maybe his village has kind of exiled him, and he's meant to be there, or maybe the gods have conspired so that that's what his fate is. And you would think, okay, if that's his fate, who am I to intervene? And so naturally, the ancient instinct would be you see that need and you walk on by. But you don't like the idea of walking on by, do you? I preached on this about a month ago in Wales, and I was in Cardiff, staying with some friends. They drove me to church, and as we drove to church, as, as I was about to do my religious duty, like the priest and the Levite, on the way to church, we drove under an underpass. I looked up at the, the top of the underpass. There was actually a guy in great distress. He had one foot on one side of the fence, the barrier, and another foot on the safe side of the barrier, and he was threatening to jump. And we passed on by. We kept going to church, leaving him there. Did you hear that silence in the room? I hope you won't feel too bad about us driving on because there are already two police cars there, four police officers dealing with the situation. And I thought to myself, I bring a very limited skill set to this situation. <laughs> if the guy had some questions about Leviticus, I might be able to help him, but beyond that, I knew my limits, we prayed for the guy, and we kept going because the Good Samaritan had already shown up, hadn't they? We've kind of outsourced the Good Samaritan in lots of ways, haven't we, nowadays? We have police and fire and ambulance service and the NHS and social services. We, we have a great infrastructure built around this story, the story of the Good Samaritan, because we know it is not right to pass on by. And maybe you don't have the time right now to deal with every need that you encounter, but as a society, we have decided that we're not going to pass on by, that some way, somehow, we're going to be good Samaritans. 
Where did that come from? It came from Jesus, it came from this story. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Instantly, we get the idea this, this guy's a bit confused, this teacher of the law. He may have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Many teachers of the law had. That's like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, learnt by heart. So in one sense, he knows the law very well. In another sense, he doesn't know it at all because he asks this confused question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you spot the confusion? If I went to my mother and I said, Mother, what must I do to inherit Grandpa's stamp collection? She would say, Glenn, you idiot. <laughs> you don't do anything to inherit Grandpa's stamp. You're in the family. And because you're in the family, you're in the will. And so you will inherit. When he dies, you get the benefit of his death, I guess, the stamp collection, and it's given to you simply because you're in the family. Did you know that's how eternal life works? Eternal life is an inheritance. What must I do to get eternal life? That's like saying, what must I do to get grandpa's stamp collection? If you're in the right family, and if the right person dies, you get the benefit. We inherit because we're in the family of Jesus. Jesus is the one who dies, and he gifts us eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus recognizes this guy's a bit confused, and so on the next slide, Jesus asks a question in response. That's great. If you're a Christian and you're asked a question you don't know the answer to, just ask another question back. Jesus does it all the time. Or just tell a story. That's what Jesus does in a second. It's brilliant. Did you know that Jesus, he's asked 300 questions in the Gospels. Do you know how many straight answers he gives? About three. If you can spot a fourth, I'd love to know what the fourth is, but I, I've counted up three straight answers to, to questions that he's asked. In, instead, what Jesus does is ask them questions because he wants to get to know the person. What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? I love that. There's the, the objective facts, what's written in the Bible, and then there's the subjective facts. What's been your journey with this issue? Tell me your story. I love that. On the next slide, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Ah, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Good answer. And he adds a brilliant other verse from Leviticus 19, and love your neighbor as yourself. Correct. Ding, ding. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Oh, what's, what's Jesus doing here? Because essentially, this teacher of the law has been very glib. He wants to do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, the only way you could earn eternal life is if you are the Son of God, as if you, by nature, are in this great family. Only if you love God with everything and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, only if you are the Messiah, only if you are the Son of God, does eternal life naturally come to you. And he's basically saying, have a go. Do you, th do you think you could? Do you think you could love God with absolutely every skerrick of your humanity 
And do you think you could love other people as much as you love yourself? I mean, we love ourselves at a very granular level, don't we? I was really struck by that when, when we had kids and, you know, you start to have to brush their teeth for them. And you're like, oh, hold still, for goodness. And you don't know, like, how do you get those teeth at the back? And you don't know how hard or how soft to do it. And it's suddenly this big drama. It's just something so tiny, brushing teeth. And yet, I brush my teeth every day. Don't give it a second thought. It's like, duh, 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 duh. I love myself every day. Don't, don't give a second thought to it. And sometimes, I might love members of my own family when they're cute, when they're not ticking me off too much. I sometimes deign to love them a little bit as much as I love myself. But, like, how many people, how many people's teeth would you brush if they weren't family members? Well, think about all the other things you do in your daily routine. How many other people would you bathe? I won't get too granular, but think of all the things you do. To how many other people would you do that same thing? It's a huge, high standard, isn't it? Love others as much as you love yourself. I love myself on a daily basis. Do I really love myself like that? Do I, do I really love others as I love myself? It's very convicting, isn't it? And what Jesus is doing, he's, he's pointing to the question, who actually loves like this? Who loves like this? completely sold out for God their creator, completely given to their neighbor. Who does that? Interestingly, just a few verses earlier, if you've got a, a church Bible, you'll see on, on verse 21, it says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Who loves God with everything? And who loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves? Who does that? Jesus, filled with the joy of the Spirit, praise Father. Did you know that before the world began, Jesus was there? He didn't just invent a religion. You know that, don't you? He, he invented the universe. You know that, right? The eternal Son of the Father has always been loving God and his neighbor, always and forever. He's always been living out this life. The family in which eternal life belongs is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus naturally, oh yeah, he always loves God. He always loves the neighbor who is his Holy Spirit. And then he comes to planet Earth to, to earth that love into our humanity. But he's the one being described in the law. He's, he's the one who is not curved in on himself in selfishness but sort of outwardly opening himself out to the world. And essentially the question for this teacher of the law is, do you think you're the son of God? Do you think you're the Messiah? This guy has delusions of grandeur. And so Jesus pricks his bubble, really, with verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But then verse 29, this guy, he wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's what happens when the heat is turned up on me. Like if you ask, Glenn, are you a loving person? Sure I am. To people who are very lovely, <laughs> on a good day, when my blood sugar is not too low, I might have just had a Mars bar, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm in my happy place. And if you're lovely, and if you're in my tight circle of trust, on a good day, I might love you. 
but otherwise? Do, do I love that person, that person, that person, out, out to the fringes of society? Are you like that? Am I like that? No. And so when the heat gets turned up, we justify ourselves. And we just basically say, I'm not as bad as some people. <laughs> right? He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? How wide do I need to extend the circle of love? Like beyond the family? Beyond the clan? Beyond the tribe? Not beyond the nation. Surely not. Not enemies, Jesus. Surely not. And then Jesus tells this story that's going to burst all of his tiny little uh, restrictions and it's going to burst all the restrictions we put on the love that we're meant to show. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Jerusalem, city of Zion, this heavenly city. It's on high, Jerusalem, built on, the, on, on a mountaintop. And he goes down to Jericho. Jericho is due east of this heavenly sanctuary. Jericho requires you to fall down from the heavenly height. Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers. They strip him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. He's very much a fallen man, this guy, wouldn't you say? Geographically, he's fallen, and he's fallen into the hands of robbers, and there he is on the side of the road. You know, in Hebrew, the word Adam just means a man, a man. Here's this guy. He's a man, fallen. What's going to happen? Well, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Priests in the tent doing the sacrifices. This priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And we've all learned to say boo hiss. But if you were an ancient person, you wouldn't think boo hiss. You'd think, well, he's got his duty to do, and he's upholding his duty. Good man. Then a Levite came past. The Levite was more involved in teaching the things of the temple. The priest did the sacrifices. The Levite taught people. It's more like a prophet, a prophetic role. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. So the law and the prophets passed by a fallen man. And as good as the law and the prophets are, they don't save him, do they? Who's going to save this guy? It's going to have to be a, a beautiful stranger from outside the system. That's what happens, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. The, the word pity is the word compassion. It's a word that's related to the word for your guts. Because ancient people, they, they know where you feel love, right? We romanticize it, don't we? We say, oh, the heart. I'm heart sick with love. Is that, is that, or do you feel crook in the guts with love, right? Stomach churning, butterflies in the tummy, right? Stomach churning, gut-wrenching pity. That's what this guy feels. Interestingly, in the Gospels, it's a word that's always applied to Jesus. It's a word so strong, it doesn't apply to anyone else in the Gospels. It's, it's Jesus, when he sees the, the multitude, the 5,000 that he needs to feed, he has compassion on them. It's the... The leper who says, are you willing to make me clean? Jesus, filled with compassion, says, I'm willing, and he cleanses the guy. It's, it's that word, this gut-wrenching, stomach-churning love. 
This guy from outside the system comes to where the man is, sees him, takes pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It's an interesting first aid kit, isn't it? If you go to the first aid kit, you have virgin olive oil and a bottle of Merlot. Um, well, it's a first century thing. It's also a biblical thing. If you did a search on oil, what would you find? If you searched a Bible website, oil is always twinned with the spirit. If you did a little Bible search on the word blood, oh, so, sorry, wine, just spoiler alert. <laughs> blood and wine, wine and blood. Oil and the spirit, spirit and the oil. So here's this one from outside the system who has such Christ-like love, who comes to where he is, pours out his spirit, pours out his blood, puts him on his own beast, more literally. In ancient thinking, the body is like a beast, interestingly. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's kind of a, a makeshift hospital. Why is it a makeshift hospital? Because Christians hadn't gotten around to inventing hospitals yet. They would do. Inspired by this story, they would start making hospitals, thousands of them. So he takes him to this makeshift hospital, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. If you've got a church Bible, you see the uh, footnote says, it's the daily wage of a day laborer. It'll get you by for one day. A denarius will get you by for one day. So he gives him two days worth. So when's this guy going to return? Not on the first day. Not on the second day. On the third day. He will come to raise this guy up to, to health and set him on his way. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He finishes the story, then he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? It's a great question. Which of the three? Here's the question I want you to think of. In whose sandals are we meant to place ourselves in this story? The teacher of the law says, who is a neighbor to me, Jesus? And Jesus says, right you are. Who is a neighbor to the fallen guy? Do you see what he's doing? The teacher of the law says, who is a neighbor to me? And Jesus says, yeah, right you are. Who is a neighbor to the fallen guy? Into whose sandals are we meant to place ourselves, first and foremost? The fallen guy. We are first the fallen guy, perishing. The law and the prophets come, they're good, but they don't save us. And then a beautiful stranger comes who is compassion covered over in skin. This Jesus figure comes and saves you, comes and rescues you. He pours out his blood to forgive you of all your sins. He pours in his spirit to give you his life and compassion. He raises you on your feet and he says, I got a little movement going. It's called Christianity. Do you want to come in? It's a compassion revolution. Do you want to join me? And for the past 2,000 years, people have been joining the compassion revolution. Do you want to join this morning? You can join this morning. If you've not been a part of it, you just need to recognize that by yourself, you can't save yourself. You're not the loving person you pretend to be. I'm not. You're not. And there we are per perishing. The law and the prophets come by. Good advice comes by. And good advice is good, but it doesn't save you. You need Jesus, the good Samaritan, to pour out his blood for you, to pour out his spirit into you, to set you on your feet, and to send you out, to 
Because the story does, be, does end, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Yeah, yeah, in the end. Once you've gone on the journey, once you've been loved, then love. But first, be loved. I'm just gonna pray a prayer now where you can just say, Jesus, I need to be loved. I'm not the loving person I pretend to be. I'm always justifying myself. I recognize I can't save myself, but Jesus, would you love me? Would you pour out your blood for me? Would you pour out your spirit into me? And would you set me on my feet to join your compassion revolution? Should we pray that? Let me pray for us. You can echo this in your heart if you, if you want. Lord Jesus, I see that you are compassion. You are love. And I recognize in my own heart failure, selfishness. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I repent. I'm sorry for all my sins. Forgive me, Jesus. Thank you that you've poured your blood out to cleanse me from my sin. Thank you that you've poured your spirit out to fill me with your love. Lord Jesus, set me on my feet and send me out to go and do likewise. For your great glory, I pray. Amen.